0: This sermon was preached by Harry Fujiwara, Associate Pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. All right, let's get started. You'll remember from our earlier study of Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians is a letter about the church written to a bunch of churches, right? Both the church at Ephesus and some surrounding churches. And we said it's primarily about the theology of the church. What is the church all about? And it was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And in chapter 1, Paul starts right off with how God has blessed us believers in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then last time, we looked at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, we saw how God gives the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him and enlightens our hearts that we might know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable power of God towards us. And then at the very end of chapter 1, Paul talks about how this new redeemed people that God has set apart, the church, how God has set Jesus Christ over that church, which is then his body. Now in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul sets apart on another task. Now he's going to explain how it is that God has set apart this people for himself. It's basically a description of the process by which Someone becomes a part of the church universal, that is, how someone gets saved, how someone becomes a Christian. Now, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But, I think some sections of scripture are just so clear and so direct about the gospel that they have to be a part of our immediate repertoire, right? They have to be verses that we know, that we can explain, that we understand. These have to be verses that we're constantly meditating on. And I think today's passage is one of those verses. Read for me Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit In them. Pray with me. Lord, we love your word because your word is truth. Lord, we love your gospel because it is the gospel that has saved us for your glory. And Lord, today we just pray that your spirit would be with us. Allow us to learn from this word. Allow us to see the glorious gospel. Allow us to see our wretched state And your amazing love and mercy contrasted to that. Lord, allow us to relish, to love, to cherish, to exalt the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, today I've broken up these ten verses into a a five-point outline if you're taking notes. And there's room on the back of the bulletin if you'd like to take notes. Uh, All five points, how about this? They begin with the letter P. We've got the problem. We've got the punishment. The prescription the purpose, and the product. That's the problem, the punishment, the prescription, the purpose, and the product. So our first P is the problem. And Paul lays it, up, lays it out right up front in verse 1. He says, he uses a metaphor that's used throughout the Bible to describe our spiritual condition, that of life and death. And he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, which you once walked. You say, Well, what does it mean that I'm dead? I'm sitting here right now, I hear you, I see you, my senses are active, but right? I'm one hundred percent alive, I am not dead. Well, it's important to make the distinction between spiritual life and physical life. Jesus does this throughout much of his teaching, as does the Apostle Paul. Right? We may be physically alive, but at the same time be spiritually dead. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew eight twenty two. And something that at first glance may seem very strange. He says to a non-committal disciple, he says, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You say, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That doesn't really make sense. Corpses burying corpses. No, what Jesus is talking about is both spiritual death and physical death in one sentence there. Basically, he's saying, let the spiritually dead worry about the worldly things like inheritances and estates that come with physical death. Or consider how Paul writes about widows in First Timothy chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. He writes, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, ignore for a moment the principle about which widows in the church to focus our ministry on, and consider what Paul says about the self-indulgent widow. She is dead even while she lives. That is, she has physical life. She's walking, she's breathing, she's eating, she's thinking, she's moving. Right? She lives, but even while she lives physically, she is dead spiritually. And her spiritual death is evidenced by her self-indulgence. So she is dead even while... She lives. Now, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, if you're physically dead, you do not respond to external stimuli. When you see, let's say, uh, an animal lying in the street, and you're wondering, well, is it dead or is it sleeping? One thing you can do is you can take a stick and you can poke the animal. Because if it's alive, it will respond to the external stimulus. It might bite you, it might run away. It's going to do something, but it's going to respond to the external stimulus. If it's dead, it's not going to respond. So to be dead means that you do not respond to the stimulus. Being spiritually dead is very similar. We're completely unresponsive in our spiritually dead state to spiritual stimuli. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person that is the spiritually dead person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them Because they are spiritually discerned. They're completely unresponsive. They're completely unaffected by the things of God. The unsaved person thinks that the things of God are folly. Now keep that verse in mind next time you're sharing the gospel with someone. Because it's not so much that you're bad at explaining. It's not so much that you're not doing a good job. It's primarily that they're spiritually dead. And they don't accept the things of the spirit of God. Your job is to be faithful, to preach the full gospel, but there's nothing that you in and of yourself can do to make that spiritually dead person alive. We'll get to exactly how that happens a little later. So we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, but note what Paul says and what Paul does not say. He does not say that we were dead because of our trespasses and sins. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, our death is a death of trespasses and sins. We are not spiritually dead because we commit sin. Rather, we commit sin because we're spiritually dead. Jesus says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, Basically, he's saying all of these evil things are pre-existing in our heart, right? They're embedded deep in our core. And when we act on these impulses that exist in our heart, we're only outwardly expressing what's been there inside of us all along, right? The visible transgression, the visible sin, let's say murder or theft or whatever, that what society can see, that's just an outward symptom, right? It's like when you have a virus, Right, the outward symptoms are the, the fever and the vomiting and the, and the coughing. Those are outward visible symptoms, but these symptoms don't cause the flu. Right? The flu, the underlying condition, the underlying problem causes the visible outward symptoms and signs. In the same way, your sin nature, right, the underlying problem, is what causes the visible outward signs and symptoms of sin. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you're in the mall, and all of a sudden you see an unattended shopping bag there, and you say, well, that'd be nice. And you decide to steal it. Now, did you become a transgressor when you took the bag? In the eyes of the state of New York, right? in the eyes of the law, yes, it's when you took the bag that you became a transgressor. But in reality... You, as a sinner, have always been covetous. You've always desired things that aren't yours. You've always lusted after the acquisition of stuff. You've always stored up your treasure here on earth. And so you acting on that impulse by stealing that bag is only an outward manifestation of an inward reality that's been there as long as you've been alive. We probably see this most clearly in our children. Many of you know I have a 2-year-old daughter and we live across the street from a public library which is which is great by the way and sometimes they have this thing it's called toy time where they just they provide a bunch of toys and all the kids get together and they play and it's great and they socialize they learn to interact it's great now what does Abigail do she comes into the room she sees the toys she grabs as many of them as she can and she sits in the corner Why? First of all, that's not even fun, right? She's not playing with the toys. She's not playing with the other kids. Why would she do that? Well, it's because she wants all the toys for herself. She doesn't want anybody else to have them. Right? Am I the only one? Am I the worst parent in the room? Or can anybody relate to this? Right? She is covetous. She is greedy. She doesn't want to share. But here's the key. I've never taught her that. At least I hope... I've never taught her that. (laughs) Like, Daddy runs into the room and grabs all the food and sits in the corner. I hope I've never taught her that. But we don't have to teach our children to sin. Why? Because it's innate in them. It's innate in us. It's part of our nature. She did not become a sinner when she sinned. She sins because she is a sinner. Whether I teach her how to or not. And you say, well, why is that distinction so important? It's super important because if we understand that it's not so much what we do that defines who we are, but that it's who we are that defines what we do, then our approach to understanding the problem is completely different. If it's what we do that defines who we are, well, then the natural explanation would be to stop doing what it is you're doing. Do better. But if it's who we are that defines what we do, then our problem is much deeper than our actions. Our problem is so deeply embedded in us that we can't just try to simply reform behavior. We can't just try harder. We're absolutely helpless. We're without hope for reform apart from a wholesale change in our very essence. We can't make ourselves better by acting differently. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We human beings have been spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins since that day. And what happens when we're dead in our trespasses and sins? Look at the text again. Those who are dead in the trespasses and sins, they follow the course of this world, and they follow the prince of the power of the air, that is, the devil. By the course of this world, he's referring to the world system, right? the world's values, what the world worships, what they spend their time and their money on. And really all it takes is a, is a quick look at what's on television or music or movies or what people are talking about, what people enjoy, to know that the course of this world is, is very godless. Right? The way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world things that the world values, is not driven by God, it's driven by self, right, driven by self-interest, self-worship, self-pleasure. The honoring and worshiping of God is nowhere to be found in what the world values. But what's interesting here is that Paul is saying that the course of the world is not just a path or a system devised by evil humans on their own. Rather, it's a path devised by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And Jesus refers to Satan elsewhere as the ruler of this world. And, you know, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have jurisdiction or authority or dominion in the world. It just means that he sovereignly allowed Satan to lead the world system and exert his power and his influence over the spiritually dead. And Paul here is addressing two types of people who reject Christ. And perhaps some of you fall into one of these two categories. First, some will object to Christianity saying, well, I don't want Jesus to be my Lord. I want to be free. And what these people don't understand is that somebody is your Lord. right? Somebody is the one you follow, whether it be Jesus or Satan. Paul makes this very clear. If you're an unbeliever, you're following the prince of the power of the air. You're not walking independently. You're under the control and influence of Satan and his demons. John 8, 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is what? Your will is to do what your father desires. These people, they say to Jesus, I will not have this man to rule over me, not realizing that for them, Satan is the one who rules over them. I think a lot of times we are guilty of kind of neutering satan. we think of him as you know this little guy with you know the curly mustache and and the pointy red tail and he sits on our shoulder like like the great kazoo from the flintstones and you know and he says oh you know look at look at that you know unattended petty cash drawer or he says oh look at that attractive young woman crossing the street or oh let's let's go join in on this you know inappropriate conversation that your coworkers are having no not at all right Peter says that he's the adversary or devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? He's not this cute little red thing with horns and a tail and you've non-Christian, you are his slave, He's devouring you. Verse two says, Satan rules the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. He's not just suggesting and implying and tempting, hey, why don't you go do that? He's basically directly or indirectly controlling you. He's at work in you. Now, the other type of non-Christian that Paul addresses here is the one who thinks that he's really not that bad. I'm really not that bad. I'm not a Satanist. That's ridiculous. I'm not openly opposed to God. I, I like God. I like the Bible. I read it every now and then. Uh, but I wouldn't call myself a Christian. Well, Paul says that whether you know it or not, whether you're an open Satanist or you're a good moral, upstanding citizen, if you are not a Christian, you are following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the power of the air. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6.16. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's one or the other. You're either a slave of Christ or you're a slave of the devil. There's no... There's no neutral ground here. There's no spiritual Switzerland, so to speak. You can't be neutral. You can't be on the fence. You're either on one side or the other. You're either following Christ or you're following the course of this world. You're following the prince of the power of the air. You are following Satan. And how does our following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, how does that manifest itself in us? Paul says, We lived in the passions of our flesh, we carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Basically, we did whatever pleased us. We lusted after whatever we wanted. We gratified our flesh. We thought nothing of the laws of God. We worshipped ourselves. We served ourselves. We thought nothing of worshipping and serving our creator. So Paul establishes who we are. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Paul establishes what we do. We follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. Right, That's our problem. And then Paul establishes what the result of these things is. The second P in our outline is the punishment. Verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. But again, I think Paul makes this very clear. It's not just about... What we do, it's about who we are. We are children of wrath by nature. We are in our very existence sinful beings rebelling against God that a holy God must punish. And that punishment is an eternal, conscious punishment in hell for eternity. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. A holy God cannot tolerate rebellion. And so the just punishment we deserve is hell. It says in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. Jesus says in John 3, 36, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's not that the wrath of God is put upon him because of his disobedience. The wrath of God that was already there due to his sinful nature remains upon him because of his sinful actions. Which again is why it doesn't matter whether we're relatively good or moral or nice. Because the person who is horrifically evil and does horrifically evil things, well, the wrath of God remains upon him. And the person who is relatively good and is an upstanding citizen and is just a nice guy but still doesn't believe in Jesus, well, the wrath of God remains upon him as well. We are, in and of ourselves, doomed to sin, regardless of our relative moral standing. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say there's two people, and let's say they're guilty of some horrible crime, and they've been sentenced to death, and the sentence and the decree are final, cannot be changed. Now, one of the death row inmates decides, well, you know, I'm only going to be around for one more week. I'm just going to be the nicest guy that I can possibly be. And so he cooks meals for widows and he writes cards to orphans and he comes and he paints the church and gives all his possessions to the poor. Right? I'm going to make this last week really count. The other guy says, well, you know, I'm only going to be around for one more week. I might as well be the meanest, worst human being I can possibly be. And so he... Goes around kicking dogs and stealing money from children and and just saying mean, horrible things to everybody he comes into contact with and he roots for the Yankees and he just does all these horrible, (laughs) wicked things. Here's my question. At the end of the day, which one is going to be put to death? The answer is both. Regardless of what they did in the past week, the death sentence remains upon them. The guy who's relatively worse behaved, the death sentence remains upon him. The guy who's relatively better behaved, the death sentence remains upon him. These actions that they do in the last week cannot remove the death sentence that was already there upon them. And so the serial killer and the serial rapist, they just exude evil. Well, apart from Christ, the wrath of God remains upon them. And the upstanding member of your community who runs a food pantry, donates half his paycheck to the poor, and attends church here every Sunday apart from Christ, the wrath of God remains upon him. In the same way, we who were dead in trespass and sins and followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air were once children of wrath and the wrath of God remained upon us. And he say, well... Pretty depressing stuff so far. And I agree, and I don't apologize at all because I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to drive home here. But here's the key. Here's the key. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Everything there is past tense. Everything there is past tense. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians. He's talking to believers who he wrote about in chapter 1 as being chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, given spiritual understanding, given an inheritance sealed with the Holy Spirit. These are believers he's writing to. And so he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 3, among whom we once all lived. We were children of Wrath. The first two points, the problem and the punishment. The problem and punishment that we, in and of ourselves, have no way to deal with or solve has been dealt with and solved by the third P, which is the prescription. Our third P is the prescription. The turning point in these ten verses here. First two words of verse 4. Verses 1 through 3, we're in this deplorable, hopeless condition, helpless state. We're destined for wrath because of who we were. Destined to live by the world and slaves to the devil. Verse 4, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. But God signals a complete difference, a radical difference and a change between the person in verses 1 to 3 and the person in verses 4 to 10, a change only possible through the power of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, these two words referring to but God in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Let's tie it back to the previous chapter. It says in chapter 1, starting at verse 19, The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Right? That power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead seated him above everything, gave him the name above all names. It's that same power that works in us when God makes us alive together with Christ. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul's saying, God displays this great power in raising Christ from the dead and exalting him. Look at the first two words of chapter 2. It begins with, and you, or other versions render it, you also, As for you, well, God displays that same power that he's talking about in the end of chapter 1. As for you, that same power works to raise you from the spiritual death. Only such a radical, unparalleled power can take the spiritually dead and make them alive in Christ. And again, the way that God makes us alive together with Christ is the gospel. The gospel that says that God sent his son Jesus to die for our trespasses and our sins, that he might take upon himself all of our trespasses and sins. Every single transgression we've ever committed or will commit and paid the punishment for them. And so he took the place of the children of wrath, experienced wrath on their behalf, became the object of wrath for us, though he himself did nothing wrong. And in so doing, he gives us his perfect record. He makes wretched sinners like us into a new creation. Where there was once spiritual death, a complete lack of response to any external spiritual stimuli, there is now a new creation. There's a desire, there's a delight in the things of God. And by his grace, he allows us to believe this gospel that we, once spiritually dead sinners enslaved by the devil can become God's children made alive together with Christ. And so you leave behind the person in verses 1 to 3. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You are no longer following the course of this world. You are no longer a slave to the prince of the power of the air. You are no longer a child of wrath. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have now been made alive together with Christ. That's the gospel That is the gospel. So then you might ask, well, why, if this letter is to believers, why does Paul tell us about who we are no longer? Why does Paul tell us about the depressing state of unbelievers, about who we once were? Well, the answer is that all the depressing sentiment in verses 1 to 3 about our broken spiritual condition has to be understood as the dark backdrop against which grace and mercy are made to shine. Right? It's like one of those nights when, not in New York, I guess, but you go out into the country a little bit, you see a pitch black sky, and then you see the moon shining brightly against the black sky. It's the same thing here. Our broken spiritual condition is the dark backdrop against which God's love and his mercy shine brightly. That is, you cannot understand how great God's mercy is until you understand how unworthy you are of it. You cannot understand how amazing grace is unless you understand how little you did, how nothing you did to deserve or merit it. In spite of how dead we are, in spite of how unworthy we are, His love for us, His compassionate affection for us through the gospel of His Son is infinitely greater. You can't understand the quickening. You can't understand the being made alive without understanding your prior spiritual condition, which was dead in trespasses and sins. These two ideas, being spiritually dead and being made alive, they're attached and they're linked. You can't see this in the English Bibles, but in the original Greek, the first seven verses of Ephesians 2 is one sentence, right? It's one thought. It's one continuous idea. That of being spiritually dead and being made alive. These two things are inextricably linked. God has taken the dead, where right, That's us. And he's made us alive together with Christ. And he has done this, right? He has enacted salvation. It's, but God, it's not, but we, as in, well, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world and the course of Satan, but we realized that what we were doing was not right. We decided that we choose God over Satan because we didn't want to be slaves to Satan anymore. We decided to follow Jesus. Right? That's not what it says at all. Right? But God, right? but God decided to take us off a path that we were inevitably following, this path of destruction, the path of the world, the path of the prince of the power of the air, and he snatched us. He intervened. He made us his own. And Paul emphasizes this point further later in verses 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's why Paul goes through an excruciating detail about how spiritually dead, how unable we were. That's why Paul makes it so clear. But God, God the one at work here, So that no one may boast, so that we might all understand that it's God's work from beginning to end to his glory. One thing to clarify here it says, and this is not your own doing in in verse 8. And theologians have debated well, what does this refer to? Does this refer to faith, or does this refer to salvation through faith? The answer is yes. First of both, right? First of all, of it, because yes, faith is from God. And the entire process of salvation by faith, also from God. Everything is from him. It's all of God. But God, not but we. Completely of God, given to us freely, though we didn't deserve it. So what happens when God saves us? The text says that he seats us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not a literal seating, like there's chairs in heaven or something like that concept i believe is similar to what peter says in first peter 2 9 when he says we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light basically we've been taken from this kingdom of darkness and and we've been moved into the marvelous light right the kingdom of darkness that paul describes in verse 2 and 3 and we're transferred into the kingdom of light that is the heavenly places in christ jesus heavenly places we've seen that before in chapter 1 We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's not so much referring to a location, but things of a heavenly nature. And so basically, in Christ, we've been transformed from our spiritually dead nature to a heavenly nature. Alive in Christ. We've been given this new mindset, a new disposition. We are new creations, and so we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is it. This is it, guys. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that transformed my life. I didn't even know this, but growing up in a non-Christian home with no Bible on the bookshelf, I was following the course of this world. I was a slave of the prince of the power of the air. The world shaped my values, and so I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be rich. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be funny. I wanted to be well-liked. And so I chased after these things, and nothing would stop me from getting these things because I was spiritually dead. I was completely spiritually dead in my trespasses and sins. I was openly opposed to Jesus. I would ridicule Christianity for just their fairy tales. And the crazy imaginations that some people had. Why? Well, First Corinthians 2, I was spiritually discerned. Right? I didn't care. Life was great. Or so I thought. I was happy until I realized I wasn't. Then I started realizing that all the things that I had put my hope in, that I had put my trust in, that I had based my life upon, were not going to make me happy, could not make me happy, could not give me any sense of fulfillment or joy. And I realized for the first time the pitiful, wretched, horrible state that I was in. I was dead even while I lived. And so I start going to church for the first time in my life. I was 22. Heard the gospel for the very first time. And I realized the wrath to come from my rebellion for the first time. I was a child of wrath. But God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, made me alive together with Christ. God saved me. God redeemed me. God made me his child. Now if you are a believer sitting here today, you have a similar story. Now the details are going to be different. Right but one commentator said this is kind of like a spiritual biography right this tells our story the ways in which your spiritual deadness manifested itself probably different from mine the venue through which you first heard the gospel may be different from mine but the basic storyline is the same god made you who was dead in trespasses and sins alive together with christ by the gospel by his great love and his great mercy to his glory But God, praise him for this prescription, praise him for the gospel. The only thing that could have solved our problem, that could have removed our punishment, was the gospel. So then one might ask, well, Paul, why does God do this? Why does God pay an infinite cost in sending his son Jesus to die for us that we can be made alive? The answer is in verse 7. And it's our fourth and it's our shortest P. It's the purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In order that God might show to all creation how rich his grace is, how rich his kindness is toward us in Jesus. The words there, he might show. In the original language, they kind of connote almost a displaying or an exhibiting like as if we redeem sinners for some kind of trophies of grace that's why god saves us we know this from ephesians 1 to the praise of his glory it's for his glory that he might receive the glory that's why god does this finally paul talks about the fifth p which is the product of our salvation what happens as a result when we're saved what is the product Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, as if Paul hadn't hammered the the point home enough, he again shows us that salvation is 100% of God from beginning to end. We are not our own workmanship, as though by saving ourselves we have set ourselves apart for good works. Rather, we are his workmanship. By saving us, he has set us apart for good works. The word for workmanship describes, it's something that's been made. It it was often used to describe finished works of art, like, like sculptures or paintings or whatever. Paul makes it very clear that our good works have no part in our obtaining salvation. He's very clear that we're not capable of good works on our own to earn salvation, We were dead in our trespasses and sins before we were saved. So how could we even do good works? It's very clear that God is the initiator. God is the provider of salvation, but God made us alive. And then as if we had any doubt still, he hammers the point home by saying, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation very clearly is not of works. But, Though good works don't produce salvation, salvation produces good works. Right? We are created in Christ Jesus, that is, tying back to verse six, made alive in Christ for the product of good works. John fifteen eight, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We prove ourselves to be his disciples through the works that God has set apart, God has set us apart for. And if we're not bearing fruit, if we're not in these good works, well, it means that God has never set us apart. It means God has never made us alive together in Christ. God has never saved us. We are his workmanship. That's a product of our salvation. And to close, I have two application points from this passage. From these 10 verses right there, these are really rich verses when it comes to theology, soteriology. What can we take home practically? The first application point is to make but God a part of your practical theology. Make but God a part of your practical theology. As in it should inform how we live our lives. Here's what I mean. The key, as a Christian, to enduring all the trials and sufferings in this life is to know that there can be nothing worse that you can go through or that can happen to you than your prior state, that is being dead in trespasses and sins walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. No matter what happens to you circumstantially in your life as a believer, nothing could be worse than that spiritually dead state that you were once in. Alienated from God, no hope, no means of rescue in and of yourself. Additionally, there can be nothing better that you can go through or that can happen to you circumstantially then your current state before God, that is being made alive together with Christ, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? No matter what happens to you circumstantially in your life as a believer, nothing can be better than the spiritually alive state that you are already in because of the gospel. And so regardless of what you're going through, Christian, take heart. But God, let's make this a part of our practical theology. But God has made you alive together with Christ. You lost your job, but God made you alive together with Christ. Your finances are in shambles, but God made you alive together with Christ. Your family life is falling apart, but God made you alive together with Christ. You feel overwhelmed, you feel pressured from every angle, you feel like you're drowning But God made you alive together with Christ. You fill in the blank with whatever your situation is. But God made you alive together with Christ. Basically, to put it another way, we have to take every step, we have to take every breath in this life with the gospel in the forefront of our minds. Right, everything we think, everything we do, everything we say needs to be informed by, needs to be in light of the fact that we are redeemed sinners saved by grace. Unworthy recipients of God's love. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. That has to inform everything in our lives. Let it be a part of your practical theology. Let but God be a part of Of your practical theology. Second application point is to walk in them. Walk in them. Look at the end of verse 10. It's the last three words in this section. Walk in them. And by them, of course, Paul is referring to the good works that he wrote about earlier in the verse. Now, it's a good thing to be theologically sound. It's good for us to understand theology. It's good for us to be able to discern what is right and what is true. So it's good for us to understand that works salvation is heretical. Right. It's good for us to understand that no man is justified by his works. It's good to understand that no man can save himself. But I think sometimes we go a little too far to the extreme and we completely disregard The importance of works. Paul just spent multiple verses hammering home that we are not saved by anything that we do. Over and over and over he makes this point. But at the end of a section in which Paul is clearly exalting the grace of God in our salvation, he ends the section by saying that we're created for good works and that we should walk in them. This is because, of course, good works are the fruit of this marvelous transformation from spiritual death to being made alive through the gospel. All right, so we need to be a people that displays that good fruit, not that we might be saved by it, but that we might display that we are his workmanship for his glory. Jesus himself said, You shall know a tree by its fruit. And we can't use Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 as an excuse not to bear fruit. right? If we are his workmanship, if we are new creations through the gospel, if we have really been made alive together with Christ, we necessarily must bear fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I think we as Reformed Christians, sometimes we make an idol of the sovereignty of God in order that we might ignore or diminish the commands for personal holiness in the Bible. Let me repeat that. I think sometimes we as reformed Christians, as Calvinists, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We love the sovereignty of God, but sometimes we make an idol of the sovereignty of God in order that we might ignore or diminish the commands for personal holiness in the Bible. But we can't do that because God takes our personal holiness very seriously. We love Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 because God's at work there. We get to Ephesians 2.10, walk in them. Or verses like 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct. And we don't like those verses nearly as much. Here's how Jerry Bridges puts it in The Pursuit of Holiness. We Christians greatly enjoy talking about the provision of God, how Christ defeated sin on the cross and gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us to victory over sin. And we should. We absolutely should. The gospel, it's all of God. It's grace. Absolutely. That's Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. Absolutely. 100% I agree with you. But we do not as readily talk about our own responsibility to walk in holiness. We are simply reluctant to face up to our responsibility. We pray for victory when we know we should be acting in obedience. On the contrary, we must strive to walk in the good works that we were created for, walk in personal holiness precisely because we are his workmanship. Yes, God has done all the work. Yes, God deserves all the glory in our salvation, but there is a product, there is a responsibility, there is an outcome that comes with this salvation and that is to bear fruit. That is to walk in them, to walk in these good works as a reflection of what he's done in our lives. And so Paul says, walk in them. By his grace, by his spirit, by the power of the gospel, we Christians, we must walk in them. May God receive All the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love your gospel. Lord, for we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, and we were children of wrath. But God made us alive together with Christ. Lord, that is the gospel. We love the gospel. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for sinners like us. Lord, we pray that we would truly see this gospel afresh. That we would give you all the glory for the transformation that you have figured in our lives Lord, that you might receive all the glory and exaltation. And Lord, if there is anybody here who does not know the gospel, who is still dead in their trespass and sins, I pray that you would quicken their hearts, Lord, that they might know you to be their Savior and Lord today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.